Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Welcome to Far-Fetched Fables, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Starship Sofa, Tales to Terrify, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Wherever you are, wherever you're listening from, this is Farfetched Fables. Welcome to show number 51. This week we're bringing you two fantastic fables. First up is a wonderfully epic tale of a group of adventurers seeking to change the fates by altering the very clockwork of the celestial sphere in order to ensure the proper alignment of the heavens. Adam Brown's use of language is both artistic and potent for setting the stage in Space Operetta. Adam Brown lives in Melbourne, Australia. His story, Neverland Blues, originally appeared in Dreaming Again, 35 New Stories Celebrating the Wild Side of Australian Fiction, from 2008. It won the 2009 Kronos Award for Best Short Fiction. His first novel, with one of the longest names I've ever come across, Pyrotechnicon, being a true account of the further adventures of Serrano de Bergerac among the states and empires of the stars, by himself deceased, was published by Coeur de Lyon in 2012 and is still available as a print-on-demand illustrated hardcover. Finally, his collection of short stories, Other Stories and Other Stories, was recently published by Satellite and is available as an audiobook. We have featured a number of stories from that collection on the Triple F. You can find out more by following the links. Reading Space Operetta is a Triple F veteran, Mark the Encaffeinated One, Kilfoyle. Mark has read innumerable stories not only for the Triple F, but pretty much all of the District of Wonders podcasts and many more. Too many to list, really. Rather than repeating his now oft-read bio, here's a quick synopsis. Mark is a Parsec-nominated author, a lover of literature and a narrator of some notoriety. He's the programme director at CHSRFM, a volunteer-owned and operated station in New Brunswick, Canada, where he can be heard on several podcasts. He seems to like cats and people to varying degrees, and one day hopes to be a living computer simulation. Until then, Mark can be found at encaffeinated.ca and theweirdshow.com. 
So, prepare yourself for some very elegant prose as we traverse the celestial spheres in search of perfect alignment in Space Operator by Adam Brown. It's the 10th day of March in the year of our Lord 1453 and Cardinal Bessarion is lofting on rotors of gold and spun silver like some godlet in his Romanesque conch helicopter, dazzling his way over the Alps from upper airs to lower purpose to drop in on Vienna where he visits with Frederick III, Holy Emperor of Germany, Prussia, and Austria. And although Frederick's happy to see the Cardinal, receiving him with splendors of many types, and fruits, artificed, exhale mists of auspicious reverie, the Cardinal, who's not much of a merry Andrew at the best of times, is in no mood for such diversions. He's here to request German military assistance against the Turks, who took Constantinople the month before. In constant Constantinople, a city due for a name change, thinks the emperor, who has got a trifle less hail fellow well met. He's very, shall we say, respectful of Turkey, mainly due to what he's been hearing from Greece. Airborne malevolences drifting across the Aegean, phlegmatic infirmities, stools loose and rank as carrion, lesions equipped with tongues, to whisper blasphemies into your dreams, and so on. So that the emperor feels, in short, that Turkey is a strange and dire enemy with whom it would be imprudent to engage, but nor does he want to be in bad odor with the cardinal and Rome, whence comes Frederick's power. Himmel! The emperor fetches a sigh from his bosom. Then it occurs to him. The stars... This is a decision for the stars. So he pleads fatigue and begs the cardinal's leave, then calls for his astrologer, Johann Müller von Königsberg, known as Regiomontanus, a venerable ancient, a seer-seer, who is born with great rapidity into the royal apartment, upon a perambulator resembling a miniature galleon of copper and jade and rickety liquor-lacquered wickerworks. A ship to sail the waves mathematical, driven before the winds of the scholars' intellections. No sooner does the astrologer give ear to his emperor's woes than he produces his divinatory tools from below decks. An astronomical almanac of limp gilt vellum, an armillary sphere of beauty and exactitude, an astrolabe of rare device. And the old scholar charts his emperor's stars on a gold constellated mainsail. It's not a propitious horoscope. Thus speaks Regiomontanus. The fury and oriental triplicity of Ares, Leo and Sagittarius, do signify that a German campaign against the Ottomans would be aspected by malefics and planets ill-defined. Mars falls amidst the sixth house. Thus the king who carrieth war to the east shall meet with choleric phantasms, unfortunate nativities, Ignominy and death. So Frederick's really glooming now. Regio Montanus bids him stay his size. This ill tide may be turned, says he, his little ship tossed by a brainstorm. 
If your highness pleases, I have at my manufactory a contrivance, a great engine recently finished in its construction, which may serve us in this matter. The emperor, who is famous for his love of the mechanical arts, cheers immediately. He sends for the cardinal to rejoin them, then calls for his edible motor car with its pie-crust chassis and its cheese wheels with its fuel of hot, black, strong tea, and very soon Frederick's reclining on marshmallow upholstery between Bessarion and Reggio Montanus as the royal sausage robot chauffeurs them through a confusion of glories to an industrial park on the outskirts of Vienna, where stands the astrologer's home, which is a storm cloud's death mask. Architecture fashioned by the layer of ultralight metals over a tropical thunderhead, diaphanous lamina draped on proud towers and wind-whipped bellows, the stratocumular form preserved in strata of glitter and film so placed as to produce structural strength. And inside now, the emperor and his cardinal follow the astrologer up and up through great rising Coriolis waltz of labs and workshops and well-furnished, hell-furnished smithies and halls shaped like turbulence and everything lit by lamps the color of midnight lightning. They achieve a broad rooftop atelier open to the sky, home to a curious vehicle. Not unlike a big bulbous violoncello eight stories high, all of glass and green silicious gossamer. From its apex a great cable reaches up, thrum-drum-tot beyond the clouds into the heavens. The cable, says Reggio Montanus, succumbing to the sin of pride, is attached to the North Star. Polaris, or Alpha Ursaea Minoris, is the star located nearest to the North Celestial Pole, i.e. the Earth's rotational access point closer than 1.20434 degrees from this to that star. Fitted with a grapnel of my own devising, the astrologer says, it was launched by Ballista into the firmament, rocket-assisted and aimed with excellent cunning. Past comets and moons it flew, for thousands of miles it flew, this serves as a cable of goodly length, until at last by God's grace it met its target, and stuck fast. The grapnel's barbs snuggled into the crystal angle where the star's points join. Frederick studies the vessel, the lines of its hull, its landing legs draped for reasons of decency with heavy fabric. So now, says he, by means of this cable your engine may haul itself heavenward, like into a funicular. Regio Montanus beams. The emperor claps his hands. Sir Sean, a witty design, sir. Bazarian regards the machine with saffron indifference. Yes, yes, but what is the point of it? Sirs, the stars are against us, the Geomontanus says. Why, then, do we not lift ourselves among the stars and change them to our favor? On the twelfth day of March, 1453, the vessel launches, hauling its way upward on its big diesel windlass, Vienna rapidly shrinking below, the earth soon lost beneath clouds as the ship enters the upper airs, then through and into numinous loomings of lunar blue, the moon hugely rolling, bowling closer, until the crew can make out the merest details of her face. 
we find our three worthies, Frederick, Regiomontanus, and Bessarion, on the ship's observation deck. Regiomontanus manned the telescope and other astronomical instruments, busying with notes and charts. Frederick's nose is pressed against the moon-cooled glass. I can see the great ring on which the moon rises. Yes, Emperor, says Cardinal Bessarion, keen to demonstrate his knowledge of astronomy. The heavenly bodies swing around the earth on epicyclic hoops of perfect matter, driven in their orbits by their love of God. Outside, the moon swings and booms, her surface alive, the travelers see now, with birds, egrets, and seagulls, and eagles, regal in cheerless eeries. Geese dabble in the sea of tranquility, honking like lugubrious flugelhorns, and abaft, a gang of crows takes wing, bragging and wrangling. The air fills with a lace of bird song as nightingales fall like merry rain upon the port windows. Such wonder, such beauty! Regimontanus muses. It may be that these birds or their ancestors were lifted here by storms, making the moon a high perch, safe from their terrestrial enemies. It may be that this accounts for the phosphoric whiteness of the moon's surface, our nights lit, our minstrels inspirited by a landscape of millennial bird shit, which might have been taken as something of a negative in the context. But Frederick is the more delighted, and guffaws of the ship travels on, departing the sublunar realm through wisps of inner light, X-ray rainbows casting invisible colors of bone-deep beauty, and past comets like immense confections parading trails of vanilla floss. Passing Venus, a dainty pink planet covered with hot, immoral, lolly corals, the travelers note a rise in temperature. It is affirmed by the great Ptolemy that a celestial order hath been distributed to the seven worlds. Regiomontanus raises his voice to be heard over a hail of shooting stars. Our earth is at the center, next outward the moon, then Venus, and now little Mercury, hottest of the worlds. And there it is, Mercury, covered in colossal blossoms, cascades of flora, vast vegetation thriving in the heat and light. But for all its wonder, the traveler's eyes are drawn beyond it, to the seething sun, high, bright, kingly thing, royally roiling prodigies of flame, thermonuclear mega-megatonnages, prominences reaching up like a hundred thundering summers. Then suddenly, they're past. The air cools, the sun dwindles as they ascend into the outer reaches of the solar system. Through infinite oceans of palest blue, through zones of wonderment and powerful novelty, hours, perhaps days, pass. Bessarion and Regiomontanus endeavor to determine the date by making lunar observations, but from the ship's shifting viewpoint the moon seems to careen, hithering and thithering behind the sun, and time begins to weird. The chronometer is now slow, now fast, running backward, forward, sideways, sometimes turning inside out altogether. A week passes, consisting entirely of Tuesdays. Then a day elapses in reverse, the travelers rising before going to bed, their meals served after they've been eaten. The calendar's a colander, dates slipping fluidly through. Mars flashes by, a blood-red blink. The seasons race. Summer rots away, succeeded by a sudden autumn. 
The ship whisks past Jupiter, sallow Halloween pumpkin glimpsed, then gone. As they swing by Saturn, winter hits with an audible slap. Chill winds and white whispers of snow. Ice crystals feather the bulkheads. Mists gentle the hull. On the foredeck, the three travelers huddle at the stove, warming their blood with cinnamon wine. Courage, sirs, says Reggio Montanus. Soon the goal of our journey will be in sight. The stellatum, the great crystal dome, which englobes our solar system. Bessarion nods. The roof of heaven, which God, who wonderfully framed and disposed all things, hath hung with stars. But winter is a jealous God, and departs but reluctantly. It rattles at the window and hurls a storm on the travellers, so that they are surrounded by its lightninged anatomy, the thunder of its unquiet heart, its wind-stricken guts. Time passes in lurches, marked by lightning flickers and green lickery flames of phosphorescence. In the candlelit snug of the foredeck, the gentlemen sit down to bacon sandwiches, as around them the months worm and churn, January grinding into February, into March. Their supper lasts until spring. And reluctantly, with one last grumbling bump-prumble of thunder, winter's gone. The chills ease. The winds dwindle. The vessel rises and rises into bosomy warmth and pale radiance as the clouds part, and the travelers have reached their destination at last. Crunch! They crash to a halt against Polaris. Then peace, quiet, the ship immersed in stars, the view such that one could behold nothing more glorious. Constellations precess and wreathe about the ship, suspended from knots and coils of declination and right ascension. Ursa Minor is a diamond condensation of light, and the stellatum in the upper distance, its vast looking-glass concavity slung with Ptolemaic rails, eternal complexities of celestial motion mapped out in spidery star tracks and fairy-light webways, humming as the Andromeda galaxy swings past, paler than white, tinkling like an immense chandelier. Now the Draco constellation comes swarming by in torrents of deliquescent gemstones, filling the cabinet with voluptuous gushes of color. Regiomontanus squints, taking readings with a pocket sextant. He scowls, unhappy with the result. Tempest fugit, sirs, he announces. The constellations are configured even less favorably than before. Best we get about our business without delay. The others follow as he hastens below decks to the ship's hangar, where sits a pretty filamentous apparatus. A smallish conveyance, a submarine of gutta-percha and candied aluminum. A vehiculum of light, the astrologer says, indicating its spangle-angled prisms and diabolic paraboloids. Starshine is the medium wherein it swims. The glasses and lenses disposed over its body are designed by my art to impel the vessel to and fro, Frederick pipes up, like under the propellers of a ship at sea. Just so, Highness. Eagerly, the Emperor hops aboard. He goggles out of the others to the transparent framework, his face so magnified by the vessel's great lenses that his skin bacteria are clearly visible. Let us go, then, gentlemen, he laughs, 
and bang at the doors of the houses of the Zodiac. The little craft sings forward, quitting the ship, bobbling on the surface of starlight. Lively brightnesses swash the keel as it thrills around Orion. Busy at the tiller, Reggio Montanus negotiates a purple turbulence near Aldebaran, then loops the craft upward through silver shivers around Cassiopeia. They hang close to the roof of heaven, where schools of fish-like creatures glimmer and blip, radio-frequency barracuda aswim in electromagnetic waves. Molten radiance spills over the gentleman's clothes like liquid heraldries. The hull shudders. Structural members groan whenever the little ship makes a turn. Vesarion sits rigidly in his seat, stiff with fear, numbly humming hymns. Frederick, for his part, is having a marvelous time. He whoops laughter as they swash through the ultraviolet backwash. Lapidary periwinkles flicker twinkling among the fluminous spumes. By and by the vessel arrives at its first stop. Sagittarius. Reggio Montanus tugs at pulleys and shroud lines, coming to a bobbing halt at the northernmost star. Chaos Borealis. A K-1-class yellow giant. Right ascension, 18 hours, 27 minutes. Declination, minus 25 degrees, point zero two nine minutes, then opens the cockpit to the interstellar winds. The star's lonely aroma washes over them, a mineral perfume as of evaporated diamonds. Without ado, Reggio Montanus sets to work. Leaning precariously over the gunwale, he peers through a jeweler's loop at the star's surface. All those ormolu multitudes of foliated spines and splines and intimate tinfoil infolds like the intricacies of some lambent seashell at length he finds ingress into one of the lower facets, an aperture into the star's clockwork interior, and selects a watchmaker's fine-nosed screwdriver from his kit. The modifications we need to make are but slight, he says. By adjusting its internal workings, I will advance this star in its zodiacal path, the constellation following in train. An eastward displacement of 1.04 arc degrees should commute the emperor's horoscope— he bows to Frederick. From ill to good. Aye, says Bessarion. But have a care, sir. This mechanism seems excellent beyond ordinary consonancy. These dainty mainsprings, those holy opaline cogs, they seem to be sacred things, the very essence of machinery. He studies the stars busy inwards with a respectful gaze. This is clockwork more delicate and happily made than the gross enginery of earthly manufacture. Reggio Montanus but nods, and insinuates its screwdriver through the aperture, slotting its tip into the star's central escapement wheel. Gingerly, notch by notch, he advances it clockwise. Ticking, clicking, trickly talking, Chaos Borealis gives a delicate shiver, Sagittarius juddering in turn. Nearby, a yellow dwarf star swings on its axis, chiming against its neighbors. Peppery clouds of stardust rain down. Regiomontanus huffs tensely, wipes his brow, then returns to his winding. Again, Chaos Borealis shudders and begins to flow. Sagittarius follows dutifully in its wake. Above the travelers' heads, Arcturus shimmies and casts mazy spirals of apricot and green. In the west, a quasar emits beams of raw physics, sizzling, as if angered by the changes that have been wrought. 
the constellation picks up speed, advancing grandly across the solar system's glassy ceiling. Its nebulae whip on the wind like flags. Plasma dazzles flit and frisk, tossing splendors into the air as Sagittarius nears its appointed angle. Just a few tenths of an arc degree to go. But then, from within Chaos Borealis, a sudden din. Something is amiss, Bessarion cries. The noises from the star worsen. A crash-bang clack racket, a clattersome crunch, crunch, crunch that Frederick recognizes from his long love of mechanical toys. "'Tis the gear train, sirs,' he says. "'It has slipped, and the Paul Spring subassembly looks about, too.' A loud metallic squeal makes him flinch. Chaos Borealis jolts, skitters to one side, then begins to slip away, dragging Sagittarius behind. The constellation's stars shift to red as they recede, flailing across the sky, doppling past Ares, then slamming into Pisces with a hurdy-gurdy clangor. The heavens dim, a swampy fog rising from below. "'This bodes ill,' says Regiomontanus, flicking through his charts. "'Sagittarius has fallen into an uneasy and malefic angle. Situated thus, it affords... Strange happenstances, discords, and mischiefs, and even attacks from enemies. The stars take on a malevolent cast, their colors turning inside out. The firmament turns infirm, the scurvy effulgence thickening. Tobacco, Frederick announces suddenly. I smell tobacco, and coffee, Turkish coffee, which is when the enemy's spaceship totters into view. A black calamitous sinuosity, leaning out of the mists like some clotted axolotl death mosque. All sick minarets and whirling dervish air screws. And are they veins on its undercarriage? To mescent blue curlicues, Arabic script spelled out in vascular squigglels, and wing things heaving along its flanks, elbowy mechanisms of oak and black tatters, silver-taloned wingtips striking lightning from the fog as it slopes from cloud to cloud straight for the Germans. It seems it was not only we who had a notion to visit the heavens, Frederick quavers. The Turkish ship, humping forward, reveals a battery of cannon, at which instant Regiomontanus wrenches the tiller, whipping the little craft about as the Turks' guns vomit flames, a fusillade, a volley of shimmering icosahedrons missing the port bow by a hand's width. These are no cannonballs, Bessarion exclaims, red-faced with outrage. The scoundrels have loaded their artillery with stars. Another salvo, brilliant citrine shrapnel snapping against the German hull. Again the guns boom, star stuff spiking bright through the air. A heavy chunk of red giant tumbling by their noses, and Reggio Montanus accelerates away, around the crab nebula, swifting past Centaurus, the enemy giving chase, fast and bastard nasty, a turquoise asterism striking the Germans' control cables, concussions, percussions, an explosion of glories. Gadzooks! Frederick yelps, as the little craft lists wildly two of its lenses beyond repair. Regiomontanus struggles to maintain control. Liquid lividities gush and slew. The craft staggers. Regiomontanus fighting to keep an even keel. He wobbles around Epsilon Eridani. 
then hauls back on the tiller, urging his limping ship forward toward the roof of heaven. Up and up, until they see it up ahead, coming clear, the vitreous dome that encloses the solar system, an infinity shimmer looming closer. Regio Montanus wrestles the craft's optics, trying for more speed, but the Turks continue to gain, two leagues distant, now one, now just a hundred yards, the creak and pulse of its wings loud as it brings its heaviest cannon to bear. There's scarcely time to gasp. It fires! Regio Montanus thrashes the tiller over, heaving his craft to starboard at the last moment. The round misses by a hand's breadth. It soars overhead and impacts with the crystal night stuff of the sky. The stellatum, the roof of heaven, the salvo slamming a hole right through it. A great black suckiness in the region of the constellation Cygnus. Like a wound, like a tornado eye, accreting a sudden storm of thunderheads quilted with rip-crackle lightning, an opalescent doom, and an apoplectic gravity that incoilingly drags the Turkish vessel, the Germans having fled to safety long since, toward the hole, closer and closer, until at last, with a great rending and stretching, a cleaving and a twining, the Turkish ship flares once, then disappears from the universe altogether, and falls all the way to perdition. Later, after hobbling back down to the mothership, the gentlemen repair to the foredeck, where Frederick and Bessarion indulge in a restorative brandy, while Reggio Montanus peers through his telescope, examining the state of the heavens. He finds many of the constellations tangled and torn, the area pillaged by the Turks a swatch of darkness, henceforth known as the Coal Sack Nebula. Right ascension twelve hours, seven minutes, declination minus sixty degrees, point zero one seven minutes. But in all, he discovers, the firmament has fallen to a generally happy pattern, with the Turks' depredations and the Germans' attempt at celestial engineering. The Zodiac has chanced upon a configuration even more fortunate than Regiomontanus had hoped. Bessarion, rising from his couch, notices it too. I see that Pisces has descended into the fourth house, and Leo, Scorpius, and Virgo into the first, second, and tenth sextiles, these are most strange happenstances. He gulps at his brandy, a little unsteady on his feet. By my reckoning, these stars bestoweth the favor of men and aerial spirits, conferring health and long old age. Just so, Excellency, Reggio Montanus says. Moreover, the given power to pacify and reconcile kings, princes, and other men, and bring joy and peace everlasting for all. Huzzah! Frederick laughs, and claps the astrologer on the back. Then our job is done, is it not, gentlemen? It is time to return homeward. And so it is the travellers set off on their journey back to Vienna. Downward and down, falling away from the stars, plunging past Saturn, past Jupiter, through spring and winter, through storms of time, the weeks turning outside in, the days flowing forwards, backwards, a curdled Thursday catching the travellers up on its coils, whirling the ship around and around faster and faster, until after an indefinite period it is tossed free to land with a thump in Vienna on the 11th day of March, 
1453, the day before the gentlemen left on their journey. Disembarking the three travelers surprised their earlier selves preparing for takeoff, and after a brief exchange of pleasantries, Reggio Montanus explains to his junior that there's no need to undertake the expedition they are planning. After all, the work has already been done. So the journey is ended before it began, and the six friends repair instead to the Emperor's Kaiser apartments, where they enjoy a feast of steaming haunches and paradisiacal paradoxical sweets, and velvety edible dancing girls, and there is joy and peace everlasting for all. I think what struck me most about this story was the prose. Adam has not only woven an entertaining story, but done so in the most floral and prosaic language— I can imagine how it was once thought that the universe was composed of nested celestial spheres, but I've never read about them written in such a beautifully descriptive manner. It's time now to set our feet on firmer ground. Time now to follow the action of a modern-day magician competing for the ultimate prize in Lev Grossman's Endgame. Lev is the author of the New York Times best-selling Magicians Trilogy and a staff writer at Time magazine. Visit him online at levgrossman.com. Our narrator for Endgame is Dr. Catherine Inskip. In her spare time, Catherine has narrated a number of stories for us at the Triple F. During the day, she weighs galaxies for a living and builds worlds in her spare time. She's addicted to chocolate and Japanese logic puzzles. And now get ready to be a part of The Endgame by Lev Grossman. It was morning rush hour, and the subway station was packed. The platform was choked with people. They bunched up at the stairs, and wherever construction made the space too narrow and they had to walk in single file. Some of them had thought it necessary to bring an umbrella, and some of them hadn't. They were all trying to hurry, while at the same time not touch each other, or look directly at each other, or acknowledge in any way that there was anybody else on the platform with them. They made themselves human black holes. No information about their interior lives, if they had any, escaped through their faces. A train pulled in, and everybody raised their hands to their ears in unison at the scream of metal on metal. A pretty young woman with short dark hair stood by a metal pylon at the edge of the platform, just short of the nubby yellow warning strip. She kept her back to the tracks watching the crowd shuffle by her. Trains came and went, but she didn't get on any of them. She just stood there. The only other person doing the same thing was an old man in a dashiki sitting on a milk crate under the stairs, who was playing Margaritaville over and over again on a steel pan. The young woman had been excited when she first arrived, but she'd been standing there for two hours now, starting at six in the morning, and her excitement was starting to pull. It was separating out into boredom and jittery. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. 
PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. The way the frosting on a birthday cake that's been left out too long separates into butter and sugar. She wasn't especially enjoying Margaritaville, which the old man in the dashiki rendered slowly and lovingly, with a lot of swelling tremolos and rallentandos. She leaned back against the iron pillar, bumpy with hundreds of coats of burnt orange house paint, thinking bored and jittery thoughts, and let the waves of people wash past her. Here they were, the winners of humanity's great historical lottery, living in the richest city in the world, in the richest period of human civilization ever. And they were trudging to work in a rat-infested cement cavern on their way to stare at computer screens for eight hours. What happened here? Whose fault was it? Who had betrayed whom? And yes, real, live rats. She'd seen six so far. She just wanted it to start already. She looked at her watch. The fug in the air was rich and capricious. Steam, sweat, machine oil, cheese, shit. Jesus, you took your life in your hands every time you breathed in. It was only about the third time she'd ever even been in a subway station. She glanced down the platform to where Rob was standing his gawky curly head bobbing and swivelling above the crowd like an ostrich's, his mouth never quite completely closed. They were supposed to make eye contact every five minutes. That was part of the system. Sean would be somewhere down the other end. The three of them were the stoppers. She looked at her watch, then back at the crowd. The thing was, it was taking too long. It had already taken too long, way too long. She looked at her watch again. 8.07. Possibly they hadn't come, or they hadn't come this way, but she didn't believe it. They had to come this way. Tactically, it was overdetermined ten times over, and plus they had good intel. But the thing was, they didn't have all that far to come, and they wouldn't have waited this long.
They must have slipped through the net. Maybe their guises were better than anticipated. Something new. They'd be at the goal soon if somebody didn't chase them down. Probably they were already there, except that then the turn would have ended. If she could just find them, she could take them. She knew she could. It might already be too late. Anyway, she had to pee. She bit her lip and looked at Rob again, gave him the OK sign. Then, when he looked away, she stepped back from the pylon, ditched her prop purse in the trash, if you see something, say something, and joined the crowd that was slowly trying to feed itself up the stairs. She was going off-piste, Sean would say, off the reservation. They would murder her if she was wrong, destroy her. But wasn't that why she was a stopper? She took the big chances nobody else would. So, anyway, if she was wrong, she'd be back in position in a couple of minutes. No harm, no foul. As she passed the man in the dashiki, he stopped covering Jimmy Buffett and stood up abruptly. She made a curious, contorted sign with her fingers and whispered a word in Farsi. He sat down again and face-planted gently into his steel pan, his sticks clattering on the cement. Some people claim that there's a woman to blame. Now she was moving around, and in play it was all different. The scene had unfrozen. It was no longer a photograph, but a movie, starring her. She could breathe again. It was like she'd taken a hit off an inhaler. The early morning fog was burning off. This was the good part, and when the going was good, nobody was better at it than she was. She tried to keep her eyes glazed and empty like everybody else, but she was full of crazy energy. She wanted to grin like a loon. Everybody else looked so normal. Even the freaks were freaky in a normal way. She slowed her pace with an effort. Walk like a regular person, asshole. The flow of the crowd bore her up the iron-shod cement stairs to the concourse level. At the turnstiles, she did a mirror-image buck-and-wing dance with a guy wearing Prada and a novelty beard who wanted to come in the same turnstile she was going out. That took an amazingly long time to sort out by which time the clock in the token booth already read 8.11. The hallways of the concourse radiated out around her in all directions. She counted five exits, and they all looked wrong. No time. Pick one. She stopped. The crowd was thinning out around her. No one was giving up any obvious tells. The turnstiles clattered and chirped incessantly in the background, at slightly different pitches like a chorus of peeping frogs. She felt a stab of panic. She could double back to the platform. It wasn't too late. But the turn would be over soon. There were rules. Shit, she said out loud. She lifted the brass and mother-of-pearl opera glasses that hung on a chain around her neck, so tiny they looked like a toy, and scanned the crowd. And you know what? 
she'd been 100% right. Young man, mid-twenties, sandy hair, olive houndstooth jacket with leather elbow patches, could pass for a pussy-chasing editorial assistant at Simon & Schuster, except for the crowd of glowing icons over his head, bobbing along in time with his steps, numbers and Greek letters and sundry more obscure symbols in fluorescent green. He was trudging up the concourse with the rest of the straits, not a care in the world. And on the same bearing, about ten feet in back of him, an upper east side matron, complete with pearls and fur jacket. Full civilian drag. A dense configuration of ochre italic writing hovered above her coiffed steel-grey head, with two satellite stars spinning in place over her shoulders. They'd sent a captain. They couldn't be working together. It was practically impossible. There were rules, rules, rules. Well, either way, they only had two options from where they were. Stairs up to the street or revolving doors to the left, which led into the basement lobby of an office building. Houndstooth stepped into the revolving doors, and bless his pussy-chasing heart because she loved revolving doors. Her heart was racing now, but she could step back from it. It was like she pressed some mental clutch, disengaging it from the drivetrain, while her fingers calmly did the walking. Throw in some archaic Dutch expletives, and just like that the door jammed with houndstooth inside. He did a hilarious involuntary mime trapped in a box routine, made all the more hilarious by the fact that he actually was trapped in a box. The crowd began backing up against the jammed door, murmuring discontentedly. It would take him a minute to figure out what she'd done, because she hadn't done it the way you'd think. It always took them a minute to figure it out. And a minute was all she needed. The matron knew something was up. She had turned around, still walking, but backwards, trying to spot her in the crowd. But she didn't have the benefit of those fancy glasses. There was a moment's grace. She began to put the matron to sleep the same way she had the busker. A Persian fainting charm. It only stings for a second. But this was apparently a much more senior magician than Jimmy Buffett back there, because before she could finish, something invisible hit her hard in the chest and she went right down on her ass. Maybe she actually should have read that writing over the matron's head. That woman was a captain at least, probably more. Shocked commuters went to help her up, but she shrugged them off, taking deep breaths and massaging her breastbone. The matron was already off and running, sprinting up the stairs like a champion, surprisingly spry in those heels. She should give chase. But first, what to do with Houndstooth? She could feel him unpicking her charm, loop by loop. A little of the rough stuff, she decided. With a gust of force, she blew the whole revolving door off its axle and back into the office building basement. The crash it made was incredible. That would hold him for a minute or two more. No broken bones, but it would shake him up and tie him up. Maybe even knock him out. Crude, but effective. And most important, legal. The crowd went shrieking crazy. The noise faded as she pounded up the steps into the sunlight, 
The matron was heading for the same office building that Houndstooth was now in the basement of, a monolith with a double-height green glass lobby. The game was well and truly afoot. Fast walking in parallel, on opposite sides of the street, she and the matron tried to trip each other, then make each other forget where they were going, then give each other heart palpitations. They messed with each other's vision and steered pedestrians into each other's way, which was somewhat off the reservation rules-wise, but they were both doing it, so call it a wash. Then, on a lark, she reached out to the lights on an idling town car and made them flash, much too brightly, so brightly that the old woman had to stop for a minute and press the heels of her hands against her eyes and lean on the hood. Set and match. She darted across the street, between the cars, and right past the wilting matron, and straight at the green glass, and through it, and there, the most beautiful sight she had ever seen, was Houndstooth coming up the escalator, right on time, still rubbing his head and arguing with a security guard over whether or not he was okay. She could capture him and go for the tie, or try to follow him to the goal and go for the win. The next best thing to knowing where something was was knowing who knew where it was, and she knew that Houndstooth knew. Though what beyond arsehole had decided to hide the blue cube in a midtown office building? Just a lot of extra hassle and clean-up for everybody. Precognition was sort of like body English in Paul. There was no good reason why it should work, but sometimes it did anyway. With her eyes closed, groping around with some nameless mental extremity in some nameless direction, she dredged one simple fact out of where it lay mired ninety seconds in the future. An elevator number. So she was ready, right behind him, when Houndstooth stepped into it. Just as the doors were closing, she karate-chopped her hand in between them. They shuddered back open, and she marched into the little box with him, with a shit-eating grin all over her face. Let's be honest, the ride-up was awkward. She really did feel sorry for him. He was a rookie, and it was just dawning on him who she was. He made the pack sign with thumb and forefinger, indicating that they could dispense with hostilities, like downing a football at the twenty. He wasn't going to fight. Disappointed houndstooth, with his narrow face and his wavy chestnut hair that was just getting thin at the temples. God, it was taking forever. For whatever reason, houndstooth had not thought it necessary to choose the express elevator. The artificial respite was giving her time to think. Too much time. Her mind had been spinning at maximum speed, and now that it wasn't getting traction on anything, the thoughts were piling up on each other. She tried to count up points, but kept getting lost. The formulae were complex, and some of the variables were still in play. But she would keep her seeding, anyway. Youngest number one since they'd been keeping records. Five months straight. She was a prodigy, a talent so out of scale that it would have smacked of witchcraft if it wasn't witchcraft they were all doing in the first place. She sighed, and Houndstooth gave her a searching look, possibly flirtatious, 
but she blanked him. It's not that she was worried about it. It's not like she was going to lose. She was just... it hurt to admit it. A little bit tired of the whole wargaming scene. Being a magician, it turned out, wasn't so much like it was in books. You thought there'd be a Sauron or a White Witch or a Voldemort waiting for you when you graduated. But you know what? Those fuckers could never be bothered to show up. Didn't get the memo. Their final betrayal, their ultimate evil, was their refusal to exist. So there she was, a newly minted sorceress, spoiling for a fight, but there was nobody to fight and precious little to fight for. Wargaming wasn't the adventure she'd been waiting for, and training for, and living for, but it was pretty much the only game in town. And she was good at it. But they'd been at it for three weeks, with another four to go, and suddenly that seemed like a fuck of a long time, a hell of a slog. Crashing at a new squat every night, in a new time zone, living on junk food, five raids a week, awake twenty hours a day on speed. People got so obsessed with it. She hadn't had breakfast this morning, and she was getting weak at the knees from too much adrenaline on an empty stomach. Where next? Vilnius, probably? Maybe Perth? There are a lot of envelopes still left to open. This would keep her numbers up, though. There would be an artefact in the cube. But you know what it was? It's that she was way too young to be this bored. Ping, the doors opened. She gestured grandly. After you. Because why not be as much of a bitch about it as absolutely possible? Houndstooth looked at her emptily, like a man cursed from birth, then walked over and buzzed himself in through the glass doors into the office. Give him some credit. He'd cased the security ahead of time. She followed. It was an office floor. Fluorescent lights, grey carpets, incurious employees in cubicles. They looked up as she passed, then back down at their screens, unaware that they were in the presence of two living gods, two angelic emissaries from the secret world that lay all around them, if they only had eyes to see it. The silence was like chloroform. It was freezing. The air was conditioned to death. She trailed after her quarry, ten paces back. He wouldn't be taking her right to it, he wasn't that scared. He probably didn't know where he was taking her. Not a big deal. She could wait while he decided. There was still some time left to play with. This was endgame stuff. Queen takes pawn. The civilians stared at their flickering, incandescent spreadsheets. A woman listened on the phone, a shoe dangling from her stocking toe, a lock of chocolate-coloured hair tucked in her mouth. The cubicles were like a maze. Funny how the walls were carpeted with the same stuff as the floor, like just in case the room suddenly changes its orientation. Escher-wise, we can all walk comfortably on the walls. A soft labyrinth. Maybe there would be a plushy, carpeted minotaur in the middle. 
God, it really was cold in here. Houndstooth turned right, then right again, then left. What's your hurry? A gaggle of office cuties excused themselves past her. She took a jogging sidestep. Hang on, where was he? She'd lost track. She stopped and hopped up and down to see over the cubicles. Nothing. If only she were as tall as Rob. She listened. Silence. She breathed out, and her breath showed white in the air. No, 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 no. She raised the opera glasses to her eyes. The entire floor was a forest of invisible writing, green and ochre, so dense as to be illegible. This wasn't an office, and there were no civilians here. She dropped to a squat and slapped the rough carpet hard with both hands and shouted a phrase in Russian. A wave of force blew out in all directions. The cubicle dividers went down in a ring around her, as if they were fir trees and she were the epicentre of a Siberian meteor strike. Somebody shrieked and a window cracked. Well, she could only do that once. Wards, wards, wards. She threw them up one after the other, even as a tide of magical energy threatened to swamp her from all sides. Neon scribbles in the air, trying to pick her shields apart and tear them down again. But nobody worked as fast as she did. It was a gift. In college, she'd had to slow her hands down for her professors. They couldn't follow. And what was her hurry? What was she trying so hard to stay ahead of, exactly? Everybody was probably expecting her to pax out now, but she'd never done that in her life. This was survivable. It had to be. At least until it wasn't. The cubicle walls began re-erecting themselves behind her, cutting off her retreat. But she didn't want to retreat. She blew on her knuckles and gave herself the hard hand. Her right hand became big and heavy and tough and numb. She loved the hard hand. You couldn't cast spells with it, but there were plenty of enchantment she could work with her left hand only. She advanced behind her huge, glittering right fist. Boom! She punched down the wall in front of her. A lanky kid with a shaved head yelped and went down under it. They were always surprised, right out of break bills, how much rough stuff people got up to. Whatever. We can all have a tea ceremony together later. A wild wind was raging through the office now, and the air was full of reams of copier paper. Ward and shield, ward and shield, she moved ahead under a hail of fire. You could actually see the invisible curve of her shield in the air, outlined by the glow of the spellwork shattering against it. Mostly boring kinetic stuff, whatever. Some of them were doing computer magic, automated spells. Weak stuff, but you could churn it out in bulk. Most of the casters were smart enough not to try to get too near to her physically, but a distractingly handsome blonde guy stepped out of an office and squared off with her, tricked out with all kinds of martial arts-type enhancements. She slipped past him, leaving behind an image of herself frozen with fear, then belted him in the back of the head with the last fading moments of the hand. From their point of view, she was speeding up and slowing down now at random intervals, and fading in and out of view. It made her hard to catch and hard to target, 
and sort of queasy-making to look at. But other things were coming at her that weren't covered by her general defences and dismissals. Crazy atmospheric effects. Fog and smoke and cold and plasma. Radiation, too. Stuff even she wouldn't have tried in a populated area. The carpet was slithering fast under her feet, flowing like lava, trying to upend her. And somebody had been choking off her air, gradually, for the past twenty seconds or so, and she couldn't quite make out who or how. They must have been laying this trap since yesterday. She had spotted the matron now, watching from the corner office, the minotaur in the maze. Stupid, should have known she wouldn't go down that easy. The cold was coming from there, and it was numbing her fingers, locking her jaw. That, along with the choking, she'd almost forgotten about it. Her vision was going all grey and psychedelic at the edges. There was no possible way this was happening. It just wasn't possible. Most of the people in this hex weren't within four levels of her. She gambled and spent some of her dwindling energy on a maximal dismissal, snuffing everything within ten yards. At least it brought her trachea back online. She sucked wind. Paper was thick in the air around her. Some of it was on fire, and somebody kept trying to form it into a kind of golem shape, which wanted to wrap its papery arms around her. She ripped up the carpet, wrapped people up in it, blocked them off. Between them they were tearing the place apart, right down to the reinforced concrete. The matron was blitzing her with the whole spellbook, major and minor, smart and stupid, presumably with the idea that something would get through and it didn't really matter what. She was strong, really strong. Not a captain. Higher than that. Sweat was freezing on her face. This was not sustainable. She had to stop it, all the bullshit, make it go away. The hair was rising on the back of her neck, static fuzz bristled on the carpeting. Something shorted out in the cubicle next to her. Computer monitors ruptured, with a sound like bursting piñatas. Frost crystals bloomed wildly on glass surfaces all around her, and snow condensed out of the air. The matron was building up to her big finale. But at the same time, she was having a ridiculous idea. Really wonder-fuckingly ridiculous. And impossible. But listen. There was a clock on the wall. There was a clock in every computer and every phone and printer and fax on this floor. Clocks were wild magic. Not much by themselves, but put them together and gather all the threads and cut them. Desperate times call for batchet insane measures. Adding a couple of magical feet to her vertical leap, she vaulted into the air and snatched a fluorescent tube out of the ceiling and made it into a grig scepter, hard and magnesium bright. She whipped it in a series of intricate patterns, tracing letters and sigils and wards in the air around her, then stabbed it down into the floor in front of her with both hands. Something rippled out from around it. Time snagged on something, got stuck. Groaning and complaining, it jerked to a halt. 
silence. She breathed hard, raggedly, resting her forehead against the rough carpet. Time hadn't really stopped, of course. They were all breathing, and their hearts were beating. But they couldn't perceive it, or time couldn't perceive them, or something. In the heat of the moment, her spellcraft had leapt ahead of whatever theory was supposed to be underpinning it. But it worked. They would spend years adjudicating the legality of it, but meantime it would just add to her legend, and she would have the blue cube. Possession. Nine-tenths of something. Now to find it. And, looking up, she found it. It was in the right hand of a tall, skinny stranger, who was strolling down the aisle toward her, between the shattered cubicles. Stray papers were hanging in the air, suspended. He batted one aside with his free arm. His clothes were odd. Fancy embroidery. If she had to describe his expression, she'd have to say it was melancholy and humorous. Well, she'd give him something to be melancholy and humorous about. She would lay him out flat. She still had the scepter for a few more minutes. But then she didn't. He'd made it go away somehow, put it away somewhere she couldn't get at. Really, it was the most eye-bendingly strange casting she could ever remember seeing. Totally alien grammary. She could have followed up with the fainting charm, her standard second serve, but she didn't. Something told her it was pointless. And anyway, if he was unconscious, she couldn't ask him how the hell he'd just done that. In that same foreign style of magic, he immobilised her. Not in a mean way, but thoroughly, like he meant it. She could try and cast something vocally, but she didn't feel like having her mouth bound too, and she still had to pee. Poppy, he said. Poppy Muller. She shrugged, as best she could under the circumstances. Yeah, and? He spun the cube cleverly on one finger. Not a magic trick, just old-fashioned fingersmithing. His clothes really were odd. Old-timey, and yet not. He might have been twenty-five, twenty-seven at most. Whose side was he on? You're ranked number one in the world, overall. And in three individual categories. I'm Quentin. He sniffed at the air, wrinkled his nose. Yeah, a lot of toxic smoke in here, burning plastic. I haven't seen a Grig scepter for years. She wasn't afraid of him exactly, but he was talking very slowly, and her time spell wouldn't hold much longer. She needed to move. She had to make him let her. Mentally, she ran through angles, looked for points of leverage. She didn't find much. You don't really want to spend the rest of your life playing games, do you? he said. I don't know, she said. Keep it flip. Maybe. It's not like I had anything else planned. I understand. 
Would you like to see a real magic trick, Poppy? She frowned. Her eyes stayed glued to the cube. What do you mean, real? She said. She'd really gone off-piste now. He let the spell dissipate. Just like that, she was free. Watching her carefully, as if she were a small wild rodent of some kind, prone to unpredictable behaviour, Quentin put his hand on her shoulder, and with the other hand he reached inside his jacket. Then he must have touched something, something quite small and extremely magic, because the ruined office vanished from around them. And just before a new world arrived to replace it, she really hoped they had bathrooms there, and everything changed forever. She had time to think. This is really going to fuck up my average. But the funny thing was, she really didn't care. It seems to me that when there is no epic struggle between good and evil... We have to construct simulations to keep us entertained. It seems that the hunt for the blue cube is just a slightly more sophisticated capture the flag. I wonder what our poppy discovers when she finally gets to the next level. Hmm. Well, that's it for this week. We hope you enjoyed these latest fables, and we hope you continue to come back for more. It's hard to believe, but it's been nearly a year since we started Far-Fetched Fables – and this year we're hoping to be nominated for a Parsec Award or two. Since this is our first year in existence, we are eligible for the Best New Speculative Fiction Podcaster team category. We'll only get the one shot at this one, so pop on over and nominate us, there's a dear. In addition, anything that we have or will run from the 1st of May last year, 2014, till April 30th this year, 2015, is eligible for the Best Speculative Fiction Story, small cast short form. There is a complete list of the eligible stories on the Triple F website. So if there was a specific story featured in Far-Fetched Fables that totally blew your mind, please nominate that as well. Don't forget, Far-Fetched Fables operates under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License, which means you can download the content, share it with all of your friends, but you can't change it and you really can't sell it. Be sure to give credit where credit is due. All other copyright remains that of the authors. If you like what you hear at Farfetched Fables, please consider making a donation to the District of Wonders. The buttons are on the website, and as I have said before, they are extremely easy to use. Remember to keep your eyes on the heavens, and if the star's alignment doesn't look favourable, perhaps a little adjustment of the celestial clockwork will grant you good fortune. Or at least a good drink. <laughs> Until next week. Bye now. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.